Open up your Bibles. I want to get you to think like a youth pastor for a moment. I spent a good deal of my life splitting up groups of people into teams. So I want you to envision for a second that we're about to go play a game out in front and we need two teams. Uh, and you need to split this group of people uh, into two teams. Okay, so I want you to think in your mind how, how you would do that, what criteria you would use to pick one or the other. And when you have an idea that you would like to share with the group, raise your hand and tell it to me. We're playing tag. Any other questions? Thank you, Michael. James, go. Okay, left and right, like the, one of the most obvious ones. There you go. What else? Male and female. What else? Pick a captain and choose. Pick a captain and choose. Okay. Birth month. Yeah. Any others? Draw names out of a hat. Draw names out of a hat. Okay. First half of the alphabet. All right. First half versus the left half. I mean, so here's what happens. After like the first couple weeks of being a youth pastor, you would need to go deeper than that, right? Like those are all like fairly mundane and boring. Then you start getting like more creative and more crazy and you know, those who like otters better than tigers or whatever, right? But there are just, there are infinite ways to split up people into two groups and it took you very short period of time to begin thinking in terms of categories. Let me give you a, a shocking reality. Those of you who know your history, even mildly understand this, that part of what allowed uh the atrocities of the Holocaust were to take individual human beings that reflect God's glory and turn them into a number. They're no longer people, they are units. So something shocking is this, really mundane, really fun, we're just going to go play tag, super innocent. But very easy for us as people to think in categories of people around us, people in our life. So things that weren't used in this room, I'd been a little bit more controversial, are let's break up by skin color. Why don't we split up by how much our parents make? We're a youth pastor, so you're all kids. Why don't we split up by how much our parents make? How about those of you who wear name brand things and those of you who don't wear name brand things? How about those of you who are really good at school and those of you who are terrible at school? How about, right? I mean, we could go on and on and begin to categorize people and divide people up into these, into these different categories. It's not hard for us. Our brain goes there naturally. We sort of think in these terms. Here's one of the very big ideas I want you to take away from this morning. There's, there's a lot that I'm going to try and cram into a short period of time this morning. But here's the big idea. It's in your title. It's choose your side. Choose your side. We are not in a story where the team is picked for us. Robert gave this idea. How about if we pick captains and let people pick their own teams? The story that we're told over and over, in fact, look for this. Look for how often this storyline is presented to you. The storyline is this, that, that you have been placed on a team. And if you have the wrong address, the wrong parents, the wrong school, the wrong look, or the wrong opportunities, then you're stuck in life. You know what that produces? That produces an endless cycle of blame. And it produces this sense of, I'm not responsible for my own choices. I'm not responsible. And it also is a very hopeless storyline. 
I was not given these opportunities, therefore I should be recompensed, and I'm, and I'm sort of stuck in this storyline. And what I want to show you this morning, that just seems plain as day to me from the scriptures, is God elevates you to an image bearer of himself. You have a choice. You have the power to decide. You are not stuck in your family tree. You're not just going to follow whatever those in your neighborhood did growing up. Jesus says many, many difficult things. And perhaps the most controversial one right now in our culture is this. There are only two teams. There is God's team and there's Satan's team. Now, here's what's curious. I probably would have been fired as a youth pastor if I said, okay, we're going to break into teams. Those on God's team over here, those of you on Satan's team over here. Oh, I was put on Satan's team by the youth pastor. I'd lose my job. I think that's the most theologically accurate way to divide teams, but I'd probably lose my job. No church would want their youth pastor dividing people into God's team and Satan's team. And yet, that's what Jesus does. Out of the words of Jesus is this idea that there are only two teams. And here's what's most potent. Take your pick. You get what you want. If you're sitting in church on a Sunday morning, it's, it's, it's quite possible that you are seeking after God. If you truly seek after God, you know what? You're going to find him. You get what you want. If you run from God and, and don't choose God, you will get that. That's where you end up. Matthew 25, it's in your notes. You don't need to turn there. I'll put it on the screen for you. Matthew 25, Jesus said this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. Pause for one second. Jesus is making not only a prediction, but a promise. I'm coming back. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. How did he come the first time? Think about Christmas. He came in humility. Obscurity, a manger, a baby, needy. When he comes back, he won't be mistaken for, for some of the things people mistake him for. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. What's Jesus going to do when he comes back? He's going to sit and separate. You know why he's sitting? Because he's a ruling king. He's going to sit on his throne. So judge Jesus is coming. He's going to sit. And the Bible says he's going to separate. Now, is there anything, is there any such thing as a shoat or a geep? Right? Those aren't things. There's sheep and there's goats. There's no Switzerland spiritually. There's no middle ground. The picture that I showed you on the screen is hot or cold. That's a biblical idea. Those of you, some of us, I have one of these in my kitchen. I noticed it this week. I didn't realize it before. I'm repenting like publicly. I have an unbiblical faucet in my kitchen. It's the kind that can kind of, you know, it just has a handle and there's not like a distinct hot or cold. That's unbiblical. It should be one on one side, one on the other. That's the picture. We are either one or the other. I promise you, you open your mouth and you say these things, you will be slandered, just like Jesus was slandered. This is one of the most offensive things we can say in our, in our current cultural climate. Here's what we're going to see today. 
We're going to see skeptics and slanderers, demons and disciples all interact with Jesus. And Jesus is going to let us know there are, there are two teams. There's God's team and there's Satan's team. And that's it. And all these four that we're going to look at fit into one of those categories. If Judge Jesus, if Judge, Judge Jesus were to come today, here's the question put before us. Whose team are we on? Whose team are we on and how do we know? How did that happen? Secondly, are you sure or unsure about that? I think it's hazy to us sometimes. It won't be hazy to the judge. He'll be crystal clear. Hear me really clearly. Jesus is not in hiding this morning. He is not seeking to sort of make this tricky and hard on you. I'm going to lay some things out from Scripture and we're going to read it together. And there, there are just some truths laid out. Let's not overcomplicate this. So am I on Jesus' team or Satan's team? Before Judge Jesus comes, in the meantime, there is a battle raging. And Jesus is going to let us in on the battle that is. Whether we see it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we understand it or not, this is a part of why life is so hard. I've already heard this morning from a couple of you great victories that last, in the last several weeks were defeats. And I, I told someone this morning who's sitting here, I said, thank you for reporting back this victory. That's encouraging to me as your pastor. I've been praying about that. Why is life so hard? We were just taught the Lord's Prayer. Why is prayer such a chore sometimes? Why do, it's because there's a battle going on. There's an actual battle to all of this, and we're going to kind of get a little peek on what the battle is, how it affects us, and what to do. When I chose the title of Good Doctor for this whole series in Luke, I chose it based off two very key passages in Luke that if you don't understand who Jesus is and what he's up to, you will misread the whole book. You may take pithy little moral statements out of it, but you'll, you'll really miss the direction that, that Dr. Luke is trying to portray of Jesus Christ. Many people have a faulty picture of who Jesus is. If I say the good, he's the good doctor, they go, absolutely. And what, what's going on in their mind is this. He's sort of a, a kindly hippie handing out medicine, bandaging up people's wounds, Right? That's, that's the picture of many, many people's minds of, of, of who Jesus is. Jesus is not a kindly hippie with medicine. Jesus is a warrior strongman. Jesus is the embodiment of a warrior God. Now, if that offends you, if that's going, ooh, don't, don't go there, Dave. We've, we've wanted to get away from onward Christian soldiers and those kinds of motifs. You know why that is? It's because we live in, in relative peace. If you're in Syria today and you're a Christian, do you want a warrior God avenging the wicked? You bet you do. It's only those who live in relative peace and sit in coffee shops and think about such things that aren't living out the daily realities, the horrors that are going on right now, that say, oh, we're a little offended by him being a warrior God. Well, guess what? God's a warrior God. And Jesus Christ is the embodiment of of this warrior God. The warrior God fights for his people. He rescues them from the wicked uh, people who've held them captive. He leads them through the Red Sea. He leads them through the wilderness. He provides a promised land. But it's a fight getting there. 
It's not just a walk in the park. Our warrior God is the Father who stands up and fights for His cherished children. I am really sorry, genuinely, it hurts me, that some of you have been handed a picture of a father who did not fight for you. Maybe the father was absent, and so it's hard for you to get in your mind a father who loves you and thinks you're cherished and fights for you. I think harder than an absentee dad might be a dad who's present and just checked out. A dad that was there physically, but just was checked out, apathetic, didn't give a rip what you did, didn't care one iota who you dated. And if you were to look back and say, man, some of the deepest hurts I have, some of the biggest hangups I have moving forward, are that I didn't have a dad that loved me enough to step in and counter me, that fought for me, that protected me from this wicked world that we live in. Hear me clearly. Your heavenly Father is a God who fights for you. He cherishes you. He's not checked out. He's not absent. So we're going to talk about the idea of choosing God's side. And and many of us have made this decision and could articulate very clearly how We are sure that we're on God's side when that happened and how that was accomplished. Some of you might be foggy on that. Some of you might be crystal clear. I know I'm not on God's side. So what I'm going to do is this. I want to lay out to you sort of three things that our team captain, we're going to use, you know, sort of picking sides. Our team captain's Jesus. What are three faces of Jesus that we see from this text in Luke? And what you will get if you were to choose to be on Jesus' team. The first step is this, that Jesus battles demons. Uh, Demons are a little bit like SS officers 10 years after World War II. For a time they were permitted great power and they reigned terror and they used their authority to ruin as many lives as possible. And then judgment day came, right? And the world community got to hear testimony at the Nuremberg trials about the atrocities that were going on there. And all of a sudden, they scattered. The light came and they scattered into the darkness. All of a sudden, these really powerful people who called the shots and reigned terror were hunted. They didn't have their power anymore. When Jesus, the great light, shows up, he exposes demons for what they are. And, and they are at his beck and call as to, as to what his authority says about them. Look at verse 14, Luke chapter 11. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Luke just strips it down, gets right to the point of what went on. This event sheds light on some spiritual realities. Demons are real. Demons really affect the lives of people, and demons whimper in the face of Jesus. They don't have any authority in front of him. Remember that in the Gospels, it's the demons and Satan who have the clearest understanding of who Jesus is, the good doctor, and what he's up to on a rescue mission. So sadly, demons and Satan get it right far more than, than most anyone else in the Gospel that I can, that I can see. 
What's the problem? They don't bow down and worship Jesus. They don't submit to Jesus as king. They're rebelling against him. So Luke just casually tosses out, he's a doctor, he's a medical doctor. He's not a witch doctor, he's not just living in la-la land. He's a medical doctor and he says that a demon was just cast out. He just, he just mentions it almost casually, doesn't he? As he was casting out a demon who was mute, the demon departed and the people marveled. Um, Kel's in the room. Kel and myself and, and, uh, and Chuck Adam took our sons to hike Half Dome one time and we were in the back country, uh, and, and I can't remember if this was before or after, but we're kind of chilling in the tent. The boys are, are over here playing cards or something, and I was sitting there, and I was putting on my boots. I was sitting at, at my tent door um, when all of a sudden a, a bear was, was in our campsite, and, and he was fairly close. He was, he was probably me to Aaron. Aaron, raise your hand for a second. Probably about, about like that, and that's about the position from my tent of where he was. The boys were over here, and without thinking... You know, fight, freeze, flight kind of a thing. Like without thinking, I, I put on my, I, I just start charging at the bear. And I'm like, ah, and I'm yelling at this bear. And this bear, like, he, he gets low and he kind of scurries away. And he goes about 25 yards away. And then he stops and turns around. And I keep walking, yelling. And I'm like, bear, you're supposed to keep going. The bear didn't keep going. The bear turned and held his ground. All of a sudden... Like, logic came in and adrenaline went away a little bit more. I'm like, I wonder what, what, what my play is here at this point. Do I keep walking towards him? Because I'm actually kind of scared of this bear. It was an interesting thing. I, I, we, we both kind of froze and it, it kind of dissipated and, and it went away. It wasn't, wasn't that big of a deal. You know what happens when squirrels show up in my campsite? I'm like King Kong to squirrels. Bring it on, squirrel, right? I'm just like, get out of here, like, shoo! And I'm like, strong man. Bears, not so much. Like, I'm 50-50. I don't know who won that battle, to be totally honest. In the face of Jesus Christ, the gnarliest bear you could imagine, like, it's, it's not a contest. We've looked at this before spiritually. Doesn't culture pit good and evil against one another? And it's just sort of this tug of war. It's just like sometimes it's winning, sometimes it's losing. Um, there, there, there's an example from nature, from just our physical space, that teaches us what this is like. When a light goes on in a dark room, it is not a contest. Light loses, I mean, light wins out over darkness every time. In an instant. It's not a battle, it's not a struggle, it's not like, whew, that was tough. It's not back and forth. Jesus comes and he, he dismisses, he dispels the demon. Here's the action for us. I'm going to give you an action under each one of these, by the way. Just my thoughts on it. You can, you can put whatever action God's telling you to do. But the action for this is take refuge in the strong man, Jesus. Take refuge in him. Don't mess with demons. And don't dread demons. If you are in Christ, you are in the strong man. You don't need to dread them. But don't mess with them. Don't take them lightly. Don't think they're folklore. Let's go on. Verse 15. The response that we see this is that people marveled and Jesus' opponents attacked. Verse 15, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, 
while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. All right, what's going on here? Our enemy are not people in our lives. I don't care what they've done to you. Our enemies are not people in our lives. Our enemy are the spiritual forces that enslave people in our lives and rage against us as well. Yet, we interact with people. And so we are to dismantle their flimsy arguments with superior ones. And Jesus is showing us how to do that. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 is in your notes. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power, listen, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. I hope in your mind you can categorize very quickly, you can think of what some of those prideful, lofty opinions are against Jesus Christ in your minds right now. You know why? Because that means you're engaging with people who aren't just in your kind of Christian ghetto. I hope you can think in your mind about what the arguments are against a creator, the existence of God, much less a Christian God who would die on a cross, pave the way uh, for, for, for sins. I hope you can think of those in your mind because it means you're engaged in things. If you can't think of what those arguments are, you need to grow up in that Christian. So Jesus shows us how. I see sort of two different categories here. There's the slanderers and there's the skeptics. Here's what the slanderers are all about. They didn't deny the sign. Instead, they attacked the Savior. So the people marvel. They didn't even discuss the issue at hand. Hey, wait a minute. We know this guy. He couldn't speak. Now he's talking. This is a similar tactic used by many people today. You know what Jesus does? He does like spiritual judo on them and uses their, uh, their momentum against them. He exposes their faulty logic. It makes no sense for a kingdom to drive out itself. He just appeals to common knowledge. Stop and think about what's being said, is what he's saying. Now, 13 years ago, uh, this couple got married. And, um, and as the one who did their wedding, they came to me for some counseling. And, and this is how it looked. There was just nonstop arguing and going on. I could not make any headway with these two at all. And so just to pause the argument, I said those magical words. I said this. I said, say cheese. And I took another picture. And then all of a sudden, they're sweet as can be. I'm obviously just having some fun. But a house divided against itself won't last. We know this to be true. We know this to be true in our own households. We know what this looks like in our schools. We know what this looks like at our place of business. Sports teams, anyone? Nations? 
I mean, you fight against yourself, eventually you devour yourself, and you don't grow in strength. You do not last. Jesus is simply putting out common knowledge. Don't overlook common knowledge that appeals like everyone goes, oh yeah, that's right. Don't forget about just appealing to common knowledge before appealing to scripture about things. He destroys the arguments. Now you're going to look at Ben and Laura this whole time. I'm going to go back to this one. I forgot to add an extra one. You guys are like, man, the Browns really do stink. That's what you're thinking right now. And I don't want you thinking about that, except for Ben. All right. He destroys argument. And then watch what else he does. He exposes their hypocrisy. So in, a, so in an instant, the slanderers, ignoring the miracle, attacking the Savior, Jesus says, wait a minute, let's look at your logic, that's faulty. And then secondly, he, 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 just, he exposes their hypocrisy. Your own people, your own sons, cast out demons. Could that have been the, the, the slanderer's actual sons? Yeah. It could have been like, wait a minute, the very people in your family then, you would have to hold them to the, sta- to the same standard. That's why he says, they'll be your judges. I'm not judging you. Your argument proves too much. We talk about this in here a lot. That people regularly make self-refuting claims. If you are ever in a dialogue about really important, urgent things, and the stakes are high, look for people who make self-refuting claims. There's many, many, many that are really, really common in our, in our culture. I mean, one of, one of the most blatant that we talk about a lot of times is people say, wait a minute, don't you dare impose your thing on me. There is no absolute truth. To which you just say, well, that proves too much. Like, is that absolutely true? Is it absolutely true that there is no absolute truth? Because if there is, you're wrong. Right? And if there isn't, you're wrong. That's a self-refuting claim. That can't, that can't logically exist. So many, many today, here's, here's the action. Many today slander, bypassing the solid evidence that sits before them. And many use self-refuting claims that say too much. And many are hypocritical. Here's, here's the action. Expose that. Speak up, Christian. Don't stand there silent. Expose that. Don't do it in hate. Do it in love. But love is really uncomfortable sometimes, isn't it? All the married people said, amen. All the parents and kids in the room said, amen. Love is just uncomfortable sometimes. So pour your energy into the argument, not the people. Is it going to get personal and feel personal sometimes? It will. And sometimes for me, I have to take, I, I did this last night in an interaction with someone I love dearly, I had to take a step back and just take a deep breath and go, this is getting personal for me. It's just self-leadership. It's just God, help me to, like, I, help me to pour my energy into the argument and not into the the person. That'll be kind of a good, a good way to to keep it in mind. So those are the slanders. How about the skeptics? The skeptics, the skeptics test him by asking for a sign. Now, evidently, they are asking for a sign in a non-ironic way. Why would it be non-ironic? Because a massive sign just took place for them. A person in their community who could not speak had a traveling rabbi come and cast out a demon, and now he can speak. And they go, you know what we want? 
You know what would help us out a lot? A sign. Okay. Gotcha. Thank you for that. Skepticism is really healthy to a point. When I said at the beginning that if you want God, you chase after God, you get God. If you don't, you don't. Sometimes people hide behind skepticism as sort of a trick on their own minds. If you are sincerely seeking truth, here's my advice to you. Doubt your doubts as much as what you already believe. So when a truth claim comes, you you should doubt that. You should test that in a sincere heart for truth. You should also doubt your doubts. If you have doubts about some things, why is that true? You should also test what you already believe and hold to be common knowledge. Many of us were or know of skeptics who can endlessly want signs. More and more signs. Jesus answers in verse 29, which we'll look at next week, but he exposes their wicked intent by endlessly saying, prove it. But why? We all know what it's like to have a child who's going, but why, but why? And at first it starts off as this great parent-child you know, encounter. Oh, well, here's why. And you're building relationship. But why? But why? But why? At some point, what do you do, parents? Don't tell me. <laughs> we might all judge you. Like, you do bad things. Like, you just go, ah, stop. What you realize is this. They don't, they don't really want to know why. They don't want to do whatever is happening or, or whatever else. They're, 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 they're on some different track. Jesus gives us permission to say enough is enough. What does Jesus do? We'll see it next week. But in verse 29, he points them back to the Old Testament. I'm not giving you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. In a, in a single word, by the way, he validates the Old Testament as, as authoritative word of God. It validates what we're told in the New Testament, which is the things written in the past are there for example for you. Look at it. You want a sign? It's already there. So engage with people, but at some point, um, you, you, you say, you want a sign? Start studying the manuscripts of the Bible. Like, like just, I'll, just, I'll just point you back to the Bible. The Bible's a giant sign. You want a sign? Go look at a rainbow. You want a sign? Go look at the stars tonight. You want a sign? Let's walk outside. Let's look at the sun and the moon. So at some point, it's okay to say enough is enough. Jesus says not all skeptics are, are there really seeking truth. He says, he puts both of these in a wicked camp. Some slander and attack people. Some are just more subtle and intellectual, kind of more civil about it. Well, I would believe, but there's no good proof. So looking at how to, how to, to, to deal with that. Here's the action item. Don't endlessly think you know better than God by testing him with more proofs. That's for you personally. Before we get to skeptics in our life or other people who are, are searching, your own self. Don't think you know better than God by endlessly demanding more and more proofs. Look at what he's already offered. And in a debate, don't feel the need to endlessly answer, answer the skeptic's test and demands for proof. Faithfully bear witness and point people to Scripture. Listen, listen to John 10. John 10, 38. I've written all these down in your notes, so no panic. Here's what John 10, 37 says. Jesus is answering skeptics. He says this. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. <laughs> How would that be, Christian, in the workplace, that just says, look, if I'm not living as if I'm possessed by a holy God, don't even listen to me. You don't know why you're failing if you're actually proclaiming to be true. 
Jesus says, don't believe me if I'm not doing the works of my father. But that's not enough. He goes on and says, if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe my father is in me and I am in the father. Why did Jesus come and do saying, I know you're ticked off at me because you don't think a, you know, a carpenter from a podunk town. Here's a demon cast out. Here are eyes being opened. Not enough. Here doing. Do people have prejudices to the gospel? A post-Christian nation? Sometimes just the, the moment you... Even if you don't believe my words. Believe. Now Jesus gets really personal and he brings it back to each one of us to be responsible. Verse 20. But if it poses their faulty logic, he calls out the hypocrisy. Let your sons who... But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come up. They're safe. But when a stronger, when one stronger than he attacks him, and he trusted and divides the spoil. Verse 23, key to our passage this morning. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me through a waterless place, seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from what sounds like a good thing. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits. The last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus asks what I ask you this morning. If it is the finger of God flicking away demons, what now? Like, what, what do you do with that? It, it puts it on us. We're no longer able to kind of pull in the Old Testament. Um, one is when Moses and the conjurers are there doing signs before Pharaoh. And they say, it's the finger of God who's doing this. In other words, they're like, this is like God's stuff out of our realm. We can't do this stuff. And then when Moses gets the Ten Commandments, the, the Ten Commandments are written by the finger of God. Well, we see this expression of the finger of God. What is that talking about? It's sort of like when God is going to reveal in a unique way part of his redemption plan. A massive thing was about to place with people, his people escaping from slavery, being let out. This is on the scene using this finger of God term. There is a peeled back look at the redemptive plan of God happening right in your heart if you don't believe in what I'm doing. Right here and right now, God scatters. Do you catch that since the Garden of Eden... God, it's this wife you gave me. God, it's my parents and pastors that didn't model it well for me. God, I've had a hard life. There's a never-ending stream of blame, and it keeps us stuck. It's those who are with Jesus and those who are against Jesus. You either gather sheep with the good shepherd, or you find yourself working against him. Jesus says it's super simple. Get on my side. Live like me. That's it. Christians, watch for this because sadly many people act cowardly and they preach a gospel that has really like that. People don't come when I preach that stuff. Don't you dare water down the gospel. What you do is you strip it of. Built into the DNA of, of this is, is Jesus' words. You ought to be accused of being narrow minded, of being ignorant in your narrow mindedness. Because I am the path. You want to get on the road to God? Get in me. That's it and look at it is really narrow not left open for debate it's into this passage here's the second thing don't settle for being moral 
This is draining me. This is the worst life possible. You don't have to tell me demons are real. I know they're real. They t- and what they do is this. Instead of coming over to Jesus' side, what's the house in this story? The house is my life. A demon-free life house. I'm going to now maintain a good life. Doesn't that sound like a moralist? Without a demon-free life, you know where you end up? In a state far worse than decides that wandering around the desert is a terrible plan. He comes back to you, instance, that if they don't deal with the root issue, if they've just cleaned house, it comes back with a vengeance. We see this. We, we understand this. If you settle for a demon, you'll miss it. Having swept filled with God, you do not live in a vacuum for a clean house. It will look an awful lot better to your friends, family, neighbors, roommates, and you're either filled with darkness or you're filled with light. There are two teams. Fill your life up with God. Make no room for demons in your life. That's the teaching here. So the action, don't settle for a moral life. Fill your life up with God. Luke chapter 4, Jesus' first sermon, he says, I've come to set the captives free. You know who the captives are? It's every single one of us. We are born into captivity. We're born in sin, held captive by Satan. Satan will never release us unless he's overpowered. And we will never escape his clutches no matter how hard we try. We are powerless to do that. That's why we need a savior. That's why we need a rescuer. That's why we need a strong man to come in and release us from the prisons of our sin. You know, baptism is an incredible picture of all of this taking place. It's a personal choice, believer's baptism is. We're going to have some baptisms coming up. By the way, we have some new members that we're going to celebrate probably next week. And we have some baptisms that will be coming up. Right behind this curtain is a baptistry. We don't bring small groups in and baptize the whole small group at once. We don't, we don't have parents come and, and all get baptized together. It's an individual decision. We look at the person individually. We baptize people, individuals. And what it is, is that's, that's a personal decision. It's a personal decision Jesus calls us to. We sometimes think about baptism like pulling on the Jesus jersey. If you pull on a jersey, it is unmistakable publicly whose team you're on. doesn't matter if you're a loud person a quiet person, extrovert or shy person, you're wearing the Jesus jersey now. It's a public statement. That lets you know whose team you're on. It also lets the enemy know that's the enemy right there, the one with the Jesus jersey. It makes you a target spiritually. And baptism itself, it's not just a bath to wash off sin that week, is it? No. It's not an outward cleansing that's going on in baptism. It's dying to your old way of life, rising to a new way of life. It's just nuking everything else and saying, I'm now walking. I'm raised to newness of life. I'm not going to fill my life up with God. Not cleaning house for a bit. I'm not just making a quick little moral thing to kind of get on God's good side. Let me have the band come on up and we end with this powerful truth in verse 27 and 28. It actually brings it really pointedly home to a personal decision. It says this. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You just have weird things go on when you read the Bible. Why are wombs and breasts being blessed? Like, what's that all about? What does that mean? Here's what it is. Indirectly, it's sort of a compliment to Jesus. 
Sadly, millions around the world today elevate and worship Mary. Jesus here definitively says, don't worship Mary. What he says here is not a put down of his, of his, of his earthly mom. It's not a put down of Mary. Rather, he's redirecting the worship. He's redirecting the spotlight. He says, you know who's blessed? It's those who hear my words and keep it. How simple is that? You don't know how to live the happy life? We looked at this earlier in Luke. Really listen to Jesus. Not just hear him, but heed him. That's it. And then just keep on doing it. Over and over. That's the happy life. He just, he just sort of like brings it into this really simple thing. That means this. It's not one person in one location in one like tiny pinpoint of history that has special access to God's favor. You know what it is? It's everyday schmucks like you and me. I, that's, this is mind blowing. We don't have to go and be, man, I wish I walked with Jesus like the disciples did then. I could be filled up with the life of God. No, 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 no. It's available to us right now. The very things that Jesus' critics and skeptics should have done is to hear and heed the word of God, to fall down and worship him. The word of life was speaking to them. The way of salvation stood in their midst. It was ready to lead them out of their small-minded prison of self. And you know what they did? They missed it. Worse yet, they attacked it, tried to dismantle it. How about you? Any hard words I ever preach in this room are because I love you and I'm willing to offend you. I hope you are pricked in your conscience. I pray that you're working for God and not against him. I pray that Jesus, I am trying to heed what he says. Dave, that's why I'm here. Praise God. We're about to take communion. And I want us to linger on this song. The elements will be passed. I want you to hold the element powerful. I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Seven, which says this, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults. With my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is my strength, is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. And the heart of the Lord's prayer is a request. It's asking. Listen to this ask. Verse 9. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever.